Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we are back for another beautiful Saturday, and the weather is, uh, well, you know, it was warm last fall, too. And the last couple of falls, although last year we had an early freeze and a snowstorm quite a bit before this time of the year, then it warmed up again, but it had a different effect during the way the hunting and fishing was affected. Now, we just had this cold front come through. We're going to get some warm weather, but then the temperatures are going to get seasonal, so it's going to be interesting. We're going to be talking a lot about how that's affecting hunting and fishing. We're also going to talk long-term effects of some of what's happening with our habitat for upland game later on in the show. So we have a lot to get to. Um, But one of the things this time of the year is know before you go. Boat ramps are changing hours or closing. Um, Some habitat isn't going to be as good for hunting as it was. The difference in the weather will be moving the fish and the animals. So we'll try to we'll try to keep you up to date on all that. And speaking of that, let's go to the phones. And joining us is Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Mr. Terry Wickstrom. How are you doing this morning? You know, I'm doing great. Um, I'm going to go down to Florida next week and practice my ice fishing jigging techniques. So... <laughs> <laughs> more like you're drinking wine on the beach techniques, Terry. Don't, well, well, yeah, I'll be, I'll be contemplating them. You know, I posted a picture a few years ago before COVID where I was on the island of Kauai in Hawaii and I was fishing this river and I, uh, I posted a picture because it was right into the ice fishing series that we're going to start here pretty soon that I'm going to be talking about on the radio. And I said I was in Hawaii practicing my ice fishing jigging techniques. Uh, it was brutal, the response I got on Facebook. So. <laughs> but, but all good natured, all good natured. So it was a lot of fun. But we still, you know what, with this weather up and down the way it is, I'm going to admit to you that I've had trouble following the fish. I don't get out on any one lake in particular often enough sometimes, and I, I try to rely on seasonal adjustments and what I think's going on. Of course, we all do. But boy, this year, if you haven't been on the water more consistently, it's been a little different, hasn't it? Well, it definitely changes from, from year to year, Terry. And the fact that for the most part, we're fishing on reservoirs, uh, you know, the lake can be dramatically different from one year to the next. So if we take a lake like Horsetooth, for example, uh, one of the things that's going on up at Horsetooth is usually this time of year we have water coming in already and the, the lake is starting to fill for the winter. Um, this year so far, the water's kind of been on and off. And I can tell you from experience that the lack of current coming in that inlet on a lake like Horsetooth definitely repositions the fish. So they they tend not to be in the areas they've been in the past when the water's running. Um, so it, it's one of those things where you got you to gotta stay on top of the, of the current conditions and what's happening on any particular body of water, whether the water's coming in, whether it's going up, whether the lake is still falling, all those kind of things. And then we're going to throw on top of that the fact that it's getting, you know, a lot colder at night, even though we're still seeing some, some warm day temperatures. 
it's getting below freezing now, and we're definitely getting to that point where that late fall, early winter patterns are starting to kick in, Terry. So everything's changing rapidly right now, but I can tell you fishing's been really good the last couple of weeks. Well, you know, fall is always good fishing. We, I'm as guilty as everybody sometimes of putting my boat away. I don't actually winterize it, so I could grab it any time. I just put some stable in it and make sure everything's drained, but I could I can put the motor up and head out, but I take a lot of my gear, I start re-going through it and fixing it up, putting it away. We do that, We have I have a tendency lately to do that way too early because, you know, we're going to talk hunting later in the show, and there's a lot of anglers that are avid hunters. They're out in the field now, so they're not fishing. A lot of people are staying home watching sports on TV, or they've got family activities coming up, all those type of things. So you get some of the best fishing at the year and possibly some of one of the best times to get bigger fish, yet you're not out on crowded waters usually. Is that what you're seeing out there? Yeah, absolutely, Terry. It's one of my favorite times of the year, no doubt. Spring and fall uh, are by far my favorite times to fish here in Colorado. And it's funny, you talk about putting your gear away for the year. It's it's kind of the opposite for me as we get into this time of year. I'm, I'm putting fresh line on my reels right now. So that I have, you know, good line when I get out and fish this time of year, because like you mentioned, it is that time of year where you might run into the biggest fish that you catch all year. And it's a, it's a shame if you have really bad line on there that you've just been stretching for the entire year and you haven't, you haven't switched it out and, and that big fish gets the boat and surges and breaks that old line. So, uh, I'm kind of the opposite right now. I'm getting all my gear ready for this bite that's going to happen for the next month. And it is very, very rewarding when you can get out on these lakes that are usually very crowded and you're maybe, you know, one of a dozen boats that are out there during the week. Now, certainly on the weekends, the lakes get a little bit more traffic, but if you can get out during the week right now, it's kind of like you got your own private lake to yourself, Terry. It really is. Let's go through a couple of the lakes you fish quite a bit. I know you've been on Boyd and Horsetooth. Let's start with Boyd. What do you see in there? Boyd's been fishing really good the last couple trips out. Uh, the water level is relatively low on Boyd and seems to still be falling slightly. Um, it's not so low that you have to worry about being able to launch a boat or anything like that, Terry. But for people that might be familiar with Boyd, uh, a good benchmark is if you look at the very north end of the lake, there's a big flat that's on that north end. The water is completely off that northern flat, and the southern end of the lake is the same deal. Uh, that big flat that's on the south end is completely dry at this point. Um, Boyd changes when the water is this low. There's definitely not a lot of cover that's still in the lake, so you don't see trees or bushes or anything like that. Um, there still is some aquatic vegetation in spots around the lake. It tends to be that the southern-facing banks on the lake, like Boyd, is where you're going to still find that aquatic vegetation. So those are the areas that we kind of focus on when we're looking shallow like that. Um, there are still some docks and things like that in the lake, and there's a few fish kind of relating to those docks, especially as you get midday. But what we've been primarily doing is going out early in the morning and looking for any of the hard bottom areas, any of the areas on the lake that have gravel or rock. And we've been very, very successful lately working deep diving crankbaits on that gravel. Uh, it's kind of a standard, standard pattern for me this time of year on a lake like Boyd. And it's been pretty, pretty productive uh, for smallmouth and largemouth. Um, we've also been catching quite a few pretty nice white bass when we're working those crankbaits on those gravelly areas. 
And then the other pattern we've been running on the lake is paying attention to where we're seeing the birds, uh, especially the seagulls and that kind of a thing. If they're up and working, up and looking, and they might not even necessarily be diving and getting the bait, but when they're kind of looking hard into a particular area, then we've gone over to those areas and scanned around a little bit and found that there were fish in those areas and those vertical presentations have been very effective in and around those fish. So working things like darter-style baits, uh, blade baits have been very effective, jigging spoons as well. Anything that you can kind of work out there, let fall to the bottom and rip up. Uh, the white bass and Boyd have been all over those presentations. And we've also been running into a handful of walleyes doing that as well, Terry. Yeah, it's a good time of the year. And if you can find those balls of bait and fish them vertically like that, you'll get multiple species. Now, I take it on your other crankbait bite, you're getting some white bass, but mostly smallmouth and largemouth. Um, but if I love it this time of the year. If you can find those white bass just below the boat or close enough where you can cast to them, are you able to get on top of those white bass, Ronnie, or are they pretty spooky? Well, they're moving around, Terry, so it tends to be that we're looking at particular areas of the lakes, kind of the flats that are still left under the water. Um, when we've found that there's bait fish populations in those areas, um, we haven't really been able to get right on top of the white bass and necessarily sit on top of them. Uh, smaller pods of bait are getting pushed around, so once we're in the general area, um, we're paying attention to our electronics. If we see fish on the graph, then we're definitely dropping straight down to them. Um, but they tend to move out from under the boat relatively quick. So uh, once we get in the area and we know there's fish in that area, we're, we're kind of fan casting our presentations. So even though we're working those vertical style presentations, we're making casts with them, Terry. So I'm taking something like a half ounce or a seven eighth ounce darter and making a real long cast out from the boat, letting that thing fall all the way down to the bottom, coming tight to it, and then ripping it up off the bottom a couple feet and then allowing it to glide and come back down to the bottom and ripping it back up. Um, you know, if you, if you just kind of stay in the area where you're seeing the fish cast around, you'll, you'll get some fish. And then the other thing that's, that's happening quite a bit right now, Terry, is once you do hook one of those fish and bring it to the boat, they tend to pull the school with them that they were traveling around in. So uh, if you have other people on the boat with you and, and you're real fast about it, if you drop right as that fish comes in next to the boat that you already have on, you're going to load up real quick with the other fish that are following that fish. So that's a that's a pretty good tip. It's kind of a, a saltwater thing we see in saltwater quite a bit, and it happens this time of year in the fall when they're out there chasing the bait. Let's move on. Well, before we move on to horse dudes, how, how long is the boat ramp going to stay open on Boyd, you know? Boyd's to the end of November usually, um, barring any weather or anything like that. Some, some years we, we get a, we get an early freeze and that kind of a thing happens and, and they may shut it down. But, uh, for the most part, it's going to, it's going to be open through, through November. All right. Let's move on to horse tooth. I know you've been out there fishing pretty differently, I think, isn't it? Or are you approaching it the same way? It's getting to that point right now where that vertical bite is turning on. Uh, we're seeing the vertical bite on horse tooth, uh, really being that first three hours of the morning, once the sun comes up, that kind of a thing, low light uh, tends to be better on horse tooth for that bite than midday. Um, primarily that has to do with kind of the, the behavior of the bait fish that are in that lake. Uh, or horse tooth has, has some gizzard shad in it, not a huge population, but it's primarily a rainbow smelt-based lake. Those rainbow smelt tend to come shallow in the evenings this time of year and push to structure. 
So you'll find the schools abate early in the morning, pushed up tight to a point, pushed up tight to a main light pump, pushed up tight to the, the corners of the dams, that kind of a thing. Once the sun comes up over those mountains and the sun gets hot on the water, then those bait fish tend to slide out and that bite can get a little tougher. So we're seeing that happen early in the morning and then kind of our typical pattern this time of year, once that bite dies off, then we start running around the lake and looking for some shallow active fish. And we tend to catch those either working a deep diving crankbait and grinding it down and getting it into that 12 to 15 foot range or deep diving suspending jerk baits can also be very effective this time of year, Terry. Uh, make long casts up to the bank, kind of reel them down and get them down to depth and then rip and pause, rip and pause sort of a presentation. Those, uh, those are the ways we go about targeting them. Once we've gotten past that that early morning kind of open water vertical bite that we look for. Now the boat ramp, they just uh, Larimer County announced this morning that the boat ramps at um, Horse Tooth and Carter are going to go change hours starting Monday. They'll be open eight to four. Although once you're on the water, you can stay on at Horse Tooth, and then they're going to close the ramps on the 27th of November. Before we wrap this up, though, there's one other type of fishing that this time of the year. A lot of weekend anglers love to take advantage of. Maybe they're going to fish from shore, or maybe if they're in a boat they want to troll, or maybe they just want to be out there catching some fish. Parks and Wildlife does a lot of stocking of trout this time of year, and a lot of the holdover trout in the lakes that are big enough to have them become more active as this water cools. Are you running into a lot of rainbow trout at both Boyd and Horsetooth? At Boyd, yes, we were seeing them at Boyd. They, we weren't necessarily fishing for them, but we were getting a lot of follows by trout. So we were definitely in the areas and seeing that the fish were out there. Um, this time of year, you also get a lot of trout that are still coming to the surface. And, you know, they're either chasing bait fish and busting or they're coming up and eating uh, midges or things like that that are coming off. And it's that time of year where if you pay attention to those fish that are coming and popping on the surface, you can make really quick, accurate cast to those fish with something like a, a small, shallow running jerk bait, maybe a MEP spinner or something along those lines. Um, you can trigger those fish to bite right away if you're just kind of Johnny on the spot and you cast at those when they come up and show themselves. Horse tooth, uh, same deal. They've been putting trout in there for the last couple years. It had been a pretty long time since they had been stocking trout, but they've managed to put a few thousand in every year for the last few years. We are definitely seeing those fish. There's a good population of, call it, 13 to 18-inch fish in the lake. Um, same sort of a deal. They're, they're in and around the bait fish a lot of the times. A lot of times they are popping on the surface, which kind of gives them away. Um, what we do a lot of times on a, on a lake like Horseshoe this time of year is we're, we're doing a lot of scanning with our electronics. So I'm out there and I'm, I'm side scanning, I'm down scanning. I'm, I'm kind of going around looking for those telltale signs of fish gathered up feeding on the bait fish. Um, while I'm doing that, a lot of times I'm, I'm flatlining some presentations out behind the boat as I'm scanning around trolling and uh, the rainbow trout are jumping all over those presentations. You know, every 10 minutes or so, it'll load up. So there are trout in there. They're pretty easy to come by. I'm hoping that this year, as the water gets a little bit colder here for the next month, that maybe some of those bigger trout that we know carry over in a lake like Horse Tooth start to show up. And there's a good possibility that we're going to see some five, six-pound fish. I think we're just a couple weeks away from that, Terry. 
And as the water cools, um, we're going to see more trout close to shore. So people that don't have a boat with the various means are going to be able to get out and probably catch. I know they just recently did some more stocking and they'll be able to catch a bunch of those fish plus holdover fish. And it's going to provide an opportunity. And actually horse tooth provides that, that um, shore opportunity. Sometimes all the way through winter just depends on the weather, right? It really does, Terry. I like to get out there even when the boat ramps have closed. Sometimes we, we launch our little boat. Other times we just do some some shore fishing and, and, and that kind of a thing. Uh, the beauty of horse youth, if, you, if you're going to go out there and fish from the bank, um, I would be looking for the steeper banks that have water on them and sort of the transition areas. So anywhere you can find one of the dirt flat kind of areas rolling off and becoming steeper and has more rock, I would sort of concentrate right in those areas initially and kind of work my way from there um you definitely have an opportunity to target those fish from the bank and the other thing to keep in mind is if the water is running at horse tooth then that inlet area can also be very very productive for trout this time of year as that current starts to come into the lake terry all right we are out of time ronnie i gotta go but great information i think the message is people get out and fish we're going to talk more about other waters during the course of the show but great information ronnie thank you all right buddy you have a good one you too we're gonna take a quick time out we come back uh tyler Swar from parks and wildlife is going to join us and we're going to talk about how we maintain our brown trout populations in colorado on terry wickstrom outdoors on 104.3 the fan Listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Jack's has locations up and down the front range to take care of all your outdoor needs. If you haven't been in one, do yourself a favor and just check them out. Let's go to the phones and joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is uh, Tyler Suarez. Good morning, Tyler. Morning, Terry. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. You know, we kind of finished up the last segment. We were talking about this is a great opportunity in the fall up and down the front range to go after the stock rainbow trout because they add, um, they, they provide such an angling opportunity and the opportunity to harvest some fish as the water cools on the front range. But there's a number of fish in Colorado that we really wouldn't have the sport fishing opportunities if it wasn't for our hatchery system. I think anybody who listens to this show is very familiar with walleyes and what we do there, gathering the spawn and then replanting those fish after they're raised in the lakes. But another fish you guys do that with a lot are brown trout, isn't it? Yep, that's correct. So we do the exact same process like you guys have talked about with walleyes, but we do it with brown trout at North Delaney near Walden. And then Antero is our secondary lake that we do that at down by kind of by fair play. Now, a lot of the rivers have some sustaining brown trout populations, but it's difficult for brown trout to sustain their own reproduction in lakes. Is that true? Yeah, so in the rivers, we have a really strong wild brown trout populations across the state in our cold water areas in the mountains. But if uh, you go into a lake or reservoir, when those fish try and spawn in the fall, when they lay those eggs, they actually get smothered by wave action a lot. And so there's really not a lot of natural reproduction occurring in our, our lakes and reservoirs. So we use um, these wild brown trout spawning operations at Delaney and at Antero to supplement those. And so that's what I wanted to talk with you guys about today. Okay. Now, um, take us through the process. 
it's this it probably just wound up because they're they're a fall spawner. Do you guys go out there and you set nets? Do you electroshock them? How do you gather the fish? So we set some nets. They're called trap nets. It's uh, essentially like a glorified lobster trap. It has a lead line that goes up to the shore, and uh, I'm trying to orient you guys. And so there's a it's like a essentially like a curtain. Kind of looks like a gill net if you guys are familiar, um, but it has really small. Uh, holes in it and so when the fish are swimming along the shore looking for a place to spawn they bump into that net and then that actually forces them to go out deep towards this like a lobster pot where there's little chambers the fish swim through and they can't find their way back out again and so we concentrate the fish in the back of the net and then we pick that net up and take the fish to our spawning trailer or spawning tent and then we sort the girls from the boys and then we take uh, the girls in and we gently squeeze their eggs into a dry pan. And then the boys, we um, gently squeeze their milk or their uh, sperm onto the eggs to fertilize them. And we add water. And once that water is touches the eggs and the milk, it actually activates the milk. And so it's active for about 90 seconds. So it's really important to make sure that the pan stays dry until you're ready to start uh, fertilizing those eggs. And so we have a group of volunteers and some of our technicians they uh, fertilize those eggs for about 90 seconds with a, a goose feather by just gently stirring them. And then after 90 seconds, those eggs are all fertilized and they go into a cooler with some an iodine solution to um, reduce any sort of fungal loads or any other sort of pathogens that may be in the lake. And then they water harden and they'll actually swell up and increase in size. And then they sit in there for about an hour and then they're ready to go to the hatchery and the, the hatchery takes them from there. About how many eggs do you gather from each Antero in North Delaney? So this year our request from the hatchery section was 1.2 million eggs. And so we took about 600,000 from Antero this year in, in two days. And then we took about 900,000 um, from North Delaney in about a week. And so we had a little bit of extra eggs. And so that'll help just if there's any sort of um, sur- poor survival on the eggs for whatever reason, we'll have a little bit of extra to cover our bases. Now, both Delaney, the North Delaney and Antero are famous for growing large fish. Do you choose those two? I mean, I know you manage the population so you can use those as your spawn gathering lakes, but there's a size of the fish, the genetics of the fish. Are there any reasons you've chose those two in particular? Um, so these two are just, they're managed as our brood lakes. So that's a lake that we manage specifically to keep these fish for spawning operations. So when we go and put in these egg requests with the hatchery um, and the fish requests, Antero and Delaney get the first pick of the, of the litter with the fish. So um, when these eggs hatch, we get 120,000 get put back into Antero, and I believe it's around forty or 50,000 go back into Delaney. And so those those fish are put back in just to make sure we have um, adults in about four years that are ready to spawn to keep that spawning operation going. So all the fish that we spawn this year, going, they'll go back into Delaney and Antero first, and then the remainder of the fish will go across the state um, wherever other biologists are requesting them. And so um, we have for, you know, we have some really big fish in Antero. We had uh, like our average eggs per female is about like 2,200 eggs per female, which is really good. Um, and then Delaney, I think, is more like 1,900 eggs per female. So 
um, quite a few eggs per girl. In the past, you may only get like 1,200 eggs per female, but those fish are getting big and they're growing. Well, you know, and that's something about putting the brown trout into a lake or reservoir environment is the fact that while they do well in rivers, um, the brown trout, even though they don't reproduce well in the lakes, they thrive as far as growth and and uh, just health, don't they? Yeah, like Antero, for example, is really shallow. It's like the max depth is only 18 feet or so. And so what that does is allows light to penetrate all the way to the bottom of the lake. And so we get a ton of vegetation growing. And what that does is allows any sort of aquatic insects and scuds to, to feed on that, that plant matter. And so that in turn feeds the fish. And so you get this really great um, high productive lake, but that can also be a two or a double edged sword. Cause in the winter, when you get um, really thick ice conditions and snow falling on the lake, it, it uh, blocks the light. And so those plants end up dying usually around like January or February. And when they die, they start to decompose, and that decomposition eats up a lot of oxygen. So occasionally we'll, we will get some winter kills on Ontario. So you get this kind of boom and bust situation there. Yeah, well, and that's why there's different regulations on the different lakes too, right? I mean, I hear feedback all the time, you know, on Ontario produces some awfully big fish, both, <clears throat> excuse me, browns and rainbows. And, you know, there's purists, especially coming from certain parts of the fishing community that want to release every big fish. Now we preach on this show, and this comes from my in fisherman days, a thing called selective harvest, where we actually understand the fishery, what the impact you're going to have, and then decide what's a reasonable harvest for that lake. Now you influence that with your regulations, but you know, somebody catches that big fish on Antero it's not such a bad thing to keep that as maybe the biggest fish of your life, or you catch a couple of big ones you want to eat, where on Delaney it would have a different impact, right? Yeah, so for uh, Antero specifically, since it is that kind of boom and bust system, we have the regulations just to trout, so there's not a size limit on it or anything for trout. And so that is because it is a boom and bust system. Um, in the winter when the, that oxygen level declines, the bigger fish have a higher oxygen demand, and so they may be impacted more so than the little fish. And so um, it's kind of like, you know, hit while the iron's hot or, you know, make hay while the sun's shining for the anglers. So, if you know, you do catch one of those big fish, you can take it home. Um, and also Denver Water occasionally will do some work on the dam. The last time the, they did work was 2015, and they drained it. And so we just kind of encourage folks to, you know, make hay while the sun's shining because at, at any time – um, it could be drained or, or, you know, the, there could be a, like a winter kill to it too. So it's not a bad thing. If you guys wanted to go and harvest fish, uh, we manage it to make sure that there is enough fish and production there. And it is a an outstanding fishery. And I also wanted to mention too, that we also had like Waterton Canyon. If you go down towards Denver, um, that actually used to be a catch and release regulation in the nineties. And then, so after, um, after a ton of years of that, we figured out that it was actually causing some stunting issues with those fish because there was no harvest going on there. And so now um, Waterton Canyon has the highest density of brown trout in the entire South Platte River. And so we removed that regulation a few years back now to try and encourage some harvest. So there is biological impetus to these regulations um, to try and you know manage these fisheries to get optimal growth out of them. Each lake and river and pond they're all different and so they're they're managed appropriately to try and get the maximum growth out of them 
Well, all I want to do is uh, thank you for the um, work you guys do because I've caught some huge brown trout across Colorado and various bodies of water, and it provides great sport fishing opportunities. So thanks for sharing how it, how the process works with us, Tyler, and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Tyler Suarez, great, great. We ran a little over, but we're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, Ed Gorman's going to join us. And uh, he's. I always look forward to this time of the year because Ed is so knowledgeable. We get so much update from him on our Upland game. Although he may be not as optimistic as usual this year. We'll see what he's got to say. Coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Let's go to the phones. One of my favorite contributors to the show from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is joining us, the small game coordinator, Ed Gorman. Good morning, Ed. Morning, Terry. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's such a beautiful day. It's hard to complain that we haven't had enough rain. Yeah, it's a, it's a great morning, for sure. Yeah, this time of the year, it's beautiful. You know, and we're going to talk about the Upland game outlook here and maybe how people can approach it and what they should do. Uh, but there's certain things that are just outside of our control here in Colorado. You know, we can try to maintain habitat, but we can't, we can't control the climate slash weather, can we? Unfortunately, no. I've been looking for that answer for close to 28 years now, and I'm at a loss as to how to make it rain when it just won't rain out east. And, you know, we've gone through, it's been a few years now, of pretty severe drought, and that affects the habitat, which really affects the birds, doesn't it? It does, it does. I'm I'm, I'm looking at it like we're in uh, the third year of the drought, and I kind of hope it's the third year of three. But, uh, yeah, certainly the, 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 the unique part of this one is it's been back-to-back-to-back years of really difficult conditions, so that has a cumulative impact on populations that... Uh, you just can't uh, bypass with habitat, unfortunately. No, you're absolutely right. And one of the things, uh, I, I don't know how many uh, upland game hunters realize this, but even if we have a decent amount of holdover birds, they're smart, they're hard to hunt. I would say a huge, huge percentage of the birds that are harvested each year are the ones that hatch this year. Isn't that right? That's correct. Uh, normally you'd expect about 70% of the annual harvest to be young of the year birds. Um, whereas in a, in a difficult year like this, in the, the past couple of years, it's going to be uh, slanted towards the adult side of the equation. And, and they, yeah, they're much more wary. They've played the game before. Um, a hunter really has to be on their game um, to do well against adult birds. Now, is this kind of give us an update? Is this across eastern Colorado? Are there spots, um, areas that are going to be better, or are we just going to have to find spots? So, as always, it's kind of spotty. Um, unfortunately, in the in the core pheasant range in the northeast part of the state where most of the hunters go, the drought was pretty much a blanket. Um, there are a few areas that got a, a few small rainstorms that can make a big difference, but it's almost impossible to identify where those are until you're out there um, walking around the cover. Um, the, the southern part of the state actually did a lot better moisture-wise this year. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that was late moisture, so pheasants probably didn't benefit from it at all. Um, however, there could have been some late hatch activity from uh, 
Bob White and Scale Quail that they might be a little better off this year. Um, so there is there is a, a silver lining to the to the drought forecast. Now, you and I have talked in the past, and I know you and your crews do a lot of scouting. Is, does it pay for somebody to get out right now before the season opens and do some scouting, at least drive roads? Or is it going to be just get out when it opens, hunt an area? If you're not seeing birds, move on to another area. I think I would choose uh, Tactic 2 there myself. Um, and we've, we've driven around a lot, putting up walk-in signs and making sure that the properties are all posted and properly and ready for the season. And we're just not seeing much. Um, to be honest with you, that would that would, that would encourage a, few, a further scouting effort um, that we just haven't seen much at all. So it's it's kind of one of those deals. Uh, I, I think the best way to go is if you're coming out hunting, just be prepared to move and, and be prepared to spend some time looking for different types of properties. And maybe you stumble across an area that appears like it got it received some more rain, and, and I'd I really focus in those areas. Well, any time's a good time, and we're going to talk about the walk-in access, but might this be a good time as you find those areas to start making relationships with some of the farmers? Yeah, always. Every every year that resembles that remark, but uh, you know, there's probably no time like this year to, to go out and spend some time out east and, and get to know some people because some of the you know some of the stuff is, just isn't ever going to be signed up and walk in, and, and it's not that those those landowners are opposed to hunting or anything. It's just, you know, it's not their thing to allow public access, but they might sure let a couple of guys in there or a couple of folks in there with a couple of kids or um, whatever the case may be. Um, it's just about relationships, and like, like almost anything in this world, it's about relationships, and the more you make and the more you hold on to, the better off you are. Yeah, you know, and uh, one of the things, I want to talk more about walking access because it's such a great program, but before we get to that, you know, hunting isn't always good, whether it's big game, upland game, small game like rabbits. Some years it's better than others. Sometimes you just have a better year than others or a worse year, regardless of the conditions. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't get out. You mentioned, you know, making relationships with the farmers. But this is a great time maybe to make relationships with your, your family and your friends or somebody who doesn't hunt a lot and get out into the walk-in access or find some areas to hunt and make the goal of the outing to be spending a day outdoors with the hope you're going to get a few shots off and maybe harvest a bird or two. Don't measure the trip by the number of birds, but measure it by the quality of the outing and just spending time in the outdoors. I think we lose sight of that quite a bit, Ed. I think so. I, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. The other part of it is uh, this is a this is a great year to... Uh, really hone your skills. Um, maybe it's not necessarily a bird hunt, but maybe it's a, a, a trap shooting opportunity or something that comes up that, where you really hone your skills on a in what, what's going to be a fairly difficult year for birds. But uh, you, you cert, this is a, certainly a good opportunity to study um, how pheasants behave and, and how they react on the landscape you know, in, a, in a variety of conditions. Um, all those things pay off when, when Mother Nature turns and and we have normal numbers of birds, or even better than number num norm, norm, norm numbers of birds. It's just a, there's always a learning opportunity out there, and, and this is this is a unique one. 
Yeah, we're actually going to talk some about that in the second hour with the folks from Colorado Clays about, you know, if you want to do some shooting, if you're not getting enough shooting out in the field, at least come and enjoy, you know, and do some recreational shotgunning. I want to talk before we run out of time, though, about the walk-in access program. Uh, this is a tremendous program that offers access without having to knock on the farmer's door for for small game of all types. Kind of tell people about the program. Yeah, so the walk-in access program is uh, we're uh, kind of right at the at the forefront of a year twenty-two for the program, which is quite amazing that it's been that long. Um, what the program does is our our cooperators go out and lease private land for public hunting opportunity. And every every acre we lease is uh, posted in a paper and electronic brochure, and it's it's open to, to small game hunting. A significant amount of it is open to big game hunting. Um, so there, there's tremendous opportunity out there. It's just a matter of picking up the brochure or picking up the electronic formats and, and going out and, and finding properties that are highlighted for you and they're posted in the field so you know you're in the right place. And you can just hunt. You don't have to knock on doors or or do any of the more difficult things that that hunters do to get permission. You just this is just open. This is it's, it's wide open. You can hunt it. Um, it's it's really a great program. It's a great starting place for you. Um, but the really neat thing about it is it kind of gets gets people out and gets them familiar with Eastern Colorado a little bit. Uh, and then you know the, the natural part happens is you. you you're out there hunting, and you meet some people, and the next thing you know, you have private land access. Um, it's, it's really great. I know there are significant numbers of hunters that that's, that walking access is all they hunt. Um, however, there are large numbers that probably hunt about 50-50 between private land and, and walking access hunting. So uh, plenty of opportunity out there. We have 235,000 acres open this year, which is a significant chunk of ground um, for people to walk around on and and. and Good opportunities, um, and maybe not maybe not as good as normal opportunities this year um, with with the drought and all, but uh, certainly plenty of opportunity for you to go walk around on. Yeah, and it's just a great way. It's so easy because you either look at the atlas online or pick up the brochure, and it has a lot of hunting tips in it too, and about bird behavior and things, and then just find those properties and like you said you can drive around they're posted and you don't have to ask permission just go hunt on them and it could be upland game or it could be rabbits or big game depending on how that land has been set aside and it's just a great way to get out and so it just adds so much opportunity to the colorado hunting public uh ed we're about out of time any last comments uh just uh, be safe and have fun out there as uh, as always we talk about uh in a normal year, we're talking about road conditions and watch out for precipitation. This year, we're going to just focus a little bit on fire danger. It's still extremely dry across most of the eastern plains, so it, it pays to be very careful where you park. And uh, uh, your behavior in the field is always a, is a key factor in how much land becomes available for the program. All right. Thank you, my friend. As always, great information. And hopefully next year we'll be talking about an abundance of birds. Uh, we, we hope so, Tara. We hope that uh, things turn around and uh, <clears throat> we start to see some recovery. All right. Thanks, Ed. Thanks. Ed, Ed Gorman, always a great resource. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back, I'm going to tell you about uh, a series we're going to start here on the radio that we do every year. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. <laughs>
Sherry Woods from Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. That little bumper when coming in was actually from the uh, the lo- Loneliness and Love EP by Wickstrom and Dobrith, which I'm the Wickstrom half of. If you ever want to listen to our music, search us on uh, social media, Wickstrom and Dobrith, or on any of your favorite streaming services. Don't just do Wickstrom because you get like 5,000 of my radio podcasts. Hey, couple things I want to catch up with you before we get to our next segment. One is I want to reflect back on what um, Ed Gorman was saying about habitat and our um, the drought we've had. Another thing that's happened in that drought is a lot of farmers have used what used to be CRP land, which was conservation land set aside as habitat that they get paid for, as grazing land and even to raise crops because the commodity prices have been so high. Uh, the farm bill comes up every five years. It's probably a couple of years out yet, but pay attention to that because it could have a huge impact on our, our ability to provide habitat to, um, upland game hunters and to the upland game itself. I'll get, um, pheasants forever on and we'll talk about that. And if there's anything we can do, um, cause adding more habitat that's maintained even in a drier year is going to help because we've lost a bunch of that habitat and hopefully the weather and the things will turn around, but having more habitat certainly wouldn't hurt. So pay attention to when the farm bill comes up, talk to pheasants forever. And, and let's see if we can't get this, uh, this thing turned around out there. Of course, mother nature is going to help us uh, quite a bit with that. Next week we'll be on ESPN instead of from nine to 11 on the fan, like we normally are. Because of a college football game, we'll be moving over to ESPN from 10 to noon next week. Just so you know, the programming, I'll mention that again later. But uh, if you follow us on Facebook, and you should follow us on Facebook, because we'll tell you if we're going to move for that week, if we have a special guest, a special program coming up. We put fishing reports on our Facebook page. So follow um, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. A lot of the show, a lot of the Ed's report, I'll, I'll podcast that on our Facebook page. And Ronnie's fishing report that we did earlier, I'll podcast that on our Facebook page. And so we get a lot of what's coming up on the show, and we reflect back on a lot of what we've covered. And then we do updates from the field when we're out fishing and hunting and doing things that we post right on Facebook to try to keep you as up-to-date as we can on what's going on out in the fishing world. So. So pay attention and also follow our YouTube channel, Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Now, a lot of that was filmed a few years ago, but it still has pertinent information. And about half of it was filmed right here in your backyard. We did two shows, Mountain States Fishing and Angling Adventures. Angling Adventures, we virtually traveled the world. Mountain States Fishing, we filmed right here in our backyard within a day's drive of the Front Range of Colorado. So a lot of that is filmed right here, and it's still a lot of really great pertinent information. Now, as far as a program that's coming up, we, every year we do, I think sometimes we've called it the masters of ice fishing. Sometimes we've called it the legends of ice fishing. I think when we first started, we called it the legends of ice fishing because we had some of the biggest names in the ice fishing industry on. Well, we're still going to have those names on, but we're going to start probably in a couple weeks here with what we're going to call this year, the masters of ice fishing. Ice fishing has just grown in popularity in Colorado. The equipment, the technology has gotten so much better, the clothing, the shelters. There's no reason to not be out enjoying some of the tremendous ice fishing we have here in Colorado. And we're going to be joined by national um, celebrities, people like Steve Panaz from Lake Commandos, 
Bro Brosdahl, um, you're familiar with the red bearded guy that you see all over the magazines. Bro's a great friend. And Mr. Ice Fishing himself, Dave Gens, we expect will join us. We're working on getting a time set up for Dave. These are good friends of mine, but I was fortunate to be around when this revolution in ice fishing took place and be part of it. When we went from either sitting just on a bucket or in a big shelter to having portable shelters and using electronics and different ways to approach it. So it's really exciting to me when we get an opportunity to do this. But one of the reasons I also want to call it the masters of ice fishing this year is because in addition to these national pros, we have some of the best ice fishermen in the country right here in Colorado. People like uh, Austin Parr, Ronnie Castiglione, and certainly our own Nate Zielinski is a tremendous part of the ice fishing world, and he's going to provide a lot of information. So the next month, we're going to do a lot on ice fishing. If you are an ice fisherman, tune in for it. If you're not, um, maybe you want to tune in and find out. Maybe something you want to take on. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, Nate Zielinski will join us on Terry Wicksham Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.